Welcome to another episode of The Impolite Psychologist. So if you're old like me, you've probably seen the movie Princess Bride. And this is a classic movie which has a lot of great one-liners in it. And one of the characters in the film keeps using this word inconceivable in everything that happens. Inconceivable. And finally, at one point in the movie, another character just looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And I feel like this is a thought that I have all the time when I am in therapy with people. That a lot of times people come into therapy and they've read some self-help book or they've been to a group or they've talked to somebody and they've learned like a psychological buzzword and and then they use it the wrong way or have totally missed the boat on what it actually means and so sometimes i correct people and explain things when it's necessary but it just happens so often that i kind of wanted to talk about it on the podcast So there are a few words that fall into this category. And the first one that comes to mind is the word mindfulness. And I feel like mindfulness gets used wrong a lot and in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that I hear it get used is that people will come in and they'll say, I dealt with this situation and I used mindfulness. I recognized that I wasn't handling the situation appropriately and then I did something totally different to make sure that I handled it appropriately. And that's actually not really what mindfulness is. That mindfulness actually has to do with being where you are when you are there. So it's the idea that you just sort of accept wherever you are in a given moment on a given day and just recognize where you are. There is no action that's required. There's no action that's required Mindfulness is not an impetus for changing your behavior. Mindfulness is just recognizing where you are when you are there. And we see this with little kids, right? It's like we see moms doing this with toddlers, that they'll have a day where there's a bunch of meltdowns. And the mom will say, okay, today was a tough day and tomorrow's a new day, and we'll see what happens then. And that's actually the correct use of mindfulness. Now, a mom is not gonna say we're using mindfulness to a toddler, but this is what it really is, is that when you are upset, you recognize and just honor that you are upset. There is nothing for you to do. It is just about honoring where you are. And so some days we 
wake up on the wrong side of the bed and stub our toes and it kind of creates how the rest of the day is gonna go and that's just life it just is some days are better than others and we just live within the limits of where we are emotionally we are not trying to change anything we're just being mindful of where we are and i know that a lot of people feel like if they're sad they should hide it or if they're angry they should hide it and in many cases you know if you're at work it's probably not a good idea to tell off your boss but you know also to understand where you are and say okay I'm having a rough time right now. This is where I am right now. And just honor it and not try to change it. Maybe if you know that you're having a bad day and you know that you're feeling angry, you don't start shooting off angry emails to people. I guess in that sense, you would modify your behavior. But just honoring where you are and knowing where you are knowing that tomorrow's a new day knowing that a minute from now things could be different but just honoring where you are when you are there i feel like this is really hard for a lot of people to just sort of be where they are and i've talked about it before that if someone is having a negative emotion and they don't want to have it. They try to force themselves to have another emotion. And I think part of that has to do with American society on some level, that everybody has to be smiley and and be wishing one another a great day. Hope you're having a great day. Have a great day. Hope all is well, right? This, this uber positive thing that's okay, you know, for making nice with strangers and stuff, but I think it gets carried way too far in that, you know, people will quote, find themselves mindful of having a hard time emotionally and try to quote, flip the script, right? Try to make it different, try to change things around. And the reality is, is that everybody needs to be able to tolerate all of their emotions, not just some of them. That in every family, there are emotions that are tolerated and emotions that are not tolerated. And so we kind of learn growing up what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and we act accordingly. So you'll find a lot of people who have people-pleasing tendencies. They always have to have a smile on their face. They always have to have a good mood. And usually if they don't have a smile on their face and they're not in a good mood, you probably won't see them because they won't go out or interact with anybody because they've got to keep this thing going because they can't tolerate the negativity right? Other families might say, it's okay to be angry. And, you know, you can confront somebody, but you better not cry, because that's considered a weakness. So I think that everybody grows up 
where their family had certain emotions that were tolerated and certain emotions that weren't. And so we all have particular emotions that we have trouble tolerating, right? And this is the key to mindfulness is that you are able to handle it when you have one of those less desirable emotions and just honor where you are and not try to be something other than what you are in that moment. Now, mindfulness is not just about the negative emotions. Mindfulness has to do with being wherever you are when things are positive too. Sometimes we have really great days where everything is just going really, really well. We're making all the right decisions. We feel like we're going on our instincts and it's working out and everything's just fantastic. And and it's very important to be mindful of those days too, to be present, to celebrate, to feel the good feelings. It's important to absorb those feelings too. And you can practice mindfulness in really wonderful moments in life. You wouldn't try to change a great day. You wouldn't say to yourself, oh, hey, I'm noticing that things are going really well right now. I think I should try to downshift into something more depressive. I think I should have more of a negative mood, right? We don't do that. We just enjoy the good times. And so that's what it's like to be mindful of the good times, the good emotions, the positive emotions. But really mindfulness just means being wherever you are, wherever you are. Just to be in that moment, that's the real definition of mindfulness. Now there's another term or phrase I should say that I don't hear as often, but when I do hear it, it is often misused. And those are the words tough love. Originally, tough love was a movement that was started to deal for families to deal with people who had substance abuse problems in their family. And it was meant to sort of reinforce any sort of positive, healthy behaviors on the part of the addict, but not to engage or enable any of the negative behaviors of an addict. For example, somebody who spends a lot of money on using drugs, their birthday rolls around, you're not trying to give them cash, right? you might find some other way to give them a gift that is not something that could be used for drugs, right? So this came from the idea that you could support somebody when they were making healthy choices, but you weren't going to enable or allow any of the negative choices that were me being made. And, and that could be anything. That could be using drugs. That could be 
lying, that could be stealing, that could be cheating, whatever the behavior was that was sort of linked to the addiction would be the behavior that people were trying to extinguish. So they were positively reinforcing um, the healthy behaviors and not reinforcing any of the unhealthy behaviors. And so that's where tough love originated from. And for some reason, this along the way got confused. And so I will often hear this from people who were abused in some way as children, usually physical abuse. And they will say something like, oh, my dad gave me tough love. And I will say, what does that mean? That he was positively reinforcing your healthy behaviors and not responding to your negative behaviors or your unhealthy behaviors? And the answer is like, no, uh, he hit me so that that was how he was showing his love. Um, And I hear this a lot and I think, you know, that's just tough. I wouldn't say that that's tough love, but this often does get misconstrued and used in the wrong ways. And it's quite sad because I think tough love is actually what it was originally intended for was a really good idea to start with. And it's gotten messed up along the way so that when one person says tough love, another person completely interprets it in a different way than what it was intended. So I think that's problematic in a lot of ways. So I had just mentioned the concept of enabling somebody. So when you enable somebody, it means that you're making conditions comfortable so that they can engage in bad behaviors. And so out of this comes this concept of codependency, right? And the the problem I see with this word is that it gets used interchangeably with dependency. And there is a slight difference. So if you're dependent upon someone, that means that you rely upon them for something a child is dependent upon a parent for food and clothing and shelter. Teenagers who don't have their driver's licenses are dependent upon their parents to get rides places, right? That's a dependency. Now, codependency is a person who needs to feel needed right? They need somebody to rely upon them in a way that is unhealthy because it's so important for them to feel important. And so we'll see this a lot in relationships where you will have a person who absolutely supports another person's bad behaviors, whether we're talking about something obvious like a parent giving their drug addicted child heaps of cash, or the less obvious where 
you know, a woman or a man becomes involved in a, with a partner who always has problems, always has drama. And that person becomes their rescuer that they swoop in. They, maybe they give them money. Maybe they give them a place to stay. Maybe they set them up with a job. Maybe they just listen to all the problems all the time and try to fix them or just listens to the same complaints over and over and over again so that they seem helpful and they seem like the savior. And a lot of times you'll see codependent people involved in relationships with partners who are extremely manipulative. And a lot of times they don't even know that they're in it. But really it has to do with that needing to be needed thing. And they need to feel like somebody relies upon them and that they are at that person's beck and call to alleviate whatever problem the person is having. And so when people realize this about themselves, it's a really hard pill to swallow. But there is a big difference between simply being dependent upon someone and being a codependent. Now, the last word that gets used incorrectly is the word trigger. And I mostly see this get used incorrectly by very young adults. And I think it's sort of a generational thing that this word has been redefined for this generation. So for a person like myself who works in trauma work, right, we deal with early childhood traumas and, and sometimes present day traumas in people's lives. But from our perspective, those of us who work in trauma, we have a very specific definition of what a trigger is. A trigger is something in the environment that you encounter, whether that's a person or that's a situation in which something happens that is very, very similar to an earlier event in your life in which you were traumatized from a young age, right? We're talking about going back to early childhood stuff. And so you, you find yourself, you know, in the grocery store and the checkout girl looks at you with sort of a frown on her face. And in that moment, you go back to being seven years old and your mother looked at you with that same face and she was ashamed of you in that moment. And so it, it brings you back to an earlier time in your life where you felt traumatized. And from a trauma perspective, it actually brings you back to that age. So however old you were at the time of the original trauma, 
is actually how you feel in the present moment when the woman at the grocery store looks at you this way. That is what a trigger is like. Now, I the way I see this term misused is I feel like people use this anytime they're in a situation in which things get uncomfortable. So if another person confronts you and it bothers you that you have been confronted as it should bother anyone being confronted, then you call that a trigger. You know, I felt uncomfortable when this person confronted my behavior, therefore I was triggered. That is not the same thing. You know, if you're just feeling uncomfortable in a situation and the actual situation warrants discomfort, then it's not necessarily a trigger. It's not a trigger. It's just that you're uncomfortable right now. And there's a difference between feeling uncomfortable and going back to a time in your life where you were traumatized. These are two very different things. And I think I've said this in previous podcasts that a lot of times people feel like they should never be uncomfortable. That having any kind of anxiety whatsoever is wrong. That you shouldn't be uncomfortable. That you should always be at least neutral, if not happy. And I think that is sort of a generational difference in a sense. Now, I'm not saying that those of us who were kids in the 70s lived a great life. I mean, I think before there were safety measures, when kids were riding around in the back of pickup trucks or riding around in the back of open hatchbacks, uh, nobody was using seatbelts, nobody was wearing helmets, everybody got to play with fireworks as much as they wanted to. Bad things did happen. I think that it was sort of an uncomfortable, shall I say, sort of a suffering type of existence. So I wouldn't say that we have to go back to those days, but I do think that this look at mental health that we are taking nowadays is really highly, highly scrutinizing that every little moment in which a person feels uncomfortable or they have some sort of anxiety that that shouldn't be happening for some reason. And I'll go back to the same thing that I've always said, and that is that there's a normal amount of anxiety and fear, and these these are actually terms that mean the same thing, that we need to have in order to propel us forward, in order for us to make better decisions in our lives. So it's not the anxiety that is the problem or the fear that is the problem. It's the fear of having the anxiety, the fear of having the fear 
that is the problem. And I think that that's why the word trigger gets used incorrectly so often. And so something I just mentioned is the concept of fear and anxiety kind of being synonyms. They are synonyms for all intents and purposes. So anxiety is a diagnosis and there are variations on the diagnosis of anxiety. You, you can have anxiety unspecified, you can have a generalized anxiety disorder, but generally the concept of anxiety is really a disorder. And what I don't like about it is that a lot of times I'll hear kids saying that they have anxiety. And it bothers me when kids say that they have anxiety. And the reason it bothers me is that it's sort of hopeless. Like anxiety is a condition that just sort of stops there. I have this thing, it's called anxiety, and that's just a condition I have, and that's just how it is. And when I hear kids say that, it just feels wrong. I would prefer it if kids could say, I have a fear, right? Instead of saying social anxiety, saying, I'm afraid of social situations because that opens up the conversation to be more about the types of fears and the specific fear that it is, rather than saying, I have social anxiety and it just sort of ends there like, oh yeah, that's an explanation for why you have problems in social situations. But if you say, I have a fear of social situations, then it's a question about, okay, what is that fear about? It's like people having anxiety before they go to work, right? What are you afraid of at work? Sometimes words are meaningful. Our use of words in the mental health world is important because the way that we express human problems and the way that we perceive human problems can change depending on how you use the words. So of course, in the end, I would say if you have any questions about words, about concepts in psychology, please try and talk to a mental health professional and really understand what words mean and what concepts mean and what psychological issues mean rather than going off of what the general public or the internet is telling you about words. Because sometimes there may be a word or a psychological concept that I do not think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I do not think it means what you think it means.